I think I found a good story. Chelsea, you've heard of Bohemian Grove before, right? Yes. The secretive elite location. Alex Jones gets a lot of his street cred from sneaking in there with a camera. And it's where, you know, satanic rituals are supposed to happen. Bohemian Grove is a real place. It is a real rich people club. I found this article. It's on The Guardian, written by Michael Sinato, and it was published on June 18th, 2023. It appears Bohemian Grove might be in a little bit of hot water because workers are suing the secretive elite club Bohemian Grove for wage theft. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> Workers at Bohemian Grove, one of the most elite and secretive clubs in the U.S., have filed a lawsuit alleging numerous unfair labor practices, including 16-hour oh workdays without breaks and a failure to pay overtime and minimum wage to the workers. Bohemian Grove, which attracts some of the most powerful people to a mysterious gathering in the woods north of San Francisco, has long been the subject of fascination and conspiracy theories. The lawsuit was brought by former valets who worked for several years at the club's Monterio summer camp in Sonoma County. The secretive 2,700-acre camp near the Russian River has operated every summer for 150 years and is rumored to end in a ritual involving a human effigy and burning of a giant sacrificial owl. The club was reportedly visited by the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and billionaire donors such as Harlan Crow, and has been rumored over the years to be the site where Richard Nixon's successful 1968 presidential election campaign was launched and where J. Robert Oppenheimer first discussed the Manhattan Project. The club currently has a list of 2,600 active members and a sizable wait list. Members have included individuals such as Henry Kissinger, Richard Nixon, Ronald Reagan, Charles Schwab, and several other powerful political and economic leaders around the world. The lawsuit alleges about 100 separate camps that comprise the club each have one or more captains who violate numerous labor laws every summer. The complaint includes an allegation that Bohemian Grove treasurer Bill Dawson has personally directed valets to falsify payroll records and to work off the clock. The lawsuit alleges valets were paid only eight hours despite working 16 plus hours a day without a break for the duration of a 14-day summer camp. Another allegation in the lawsuit claims a worker was directed to hide from a payroll employee when they made a surprise visit to the camp as they were being paid under the table. We just want this to stop, said former valet at the camp who requested to remain anonymous for fear of retaliation from the club or members. The worker described members as obscenely wealthy with private jets, million dollar cars, 200000 watches and homes on the billionaire's beach in Malibu. They said that they would have to perform tasks beyond their job duties for some members, such as one instance where a billionaire member forgot to bring underwear to the camp and the valets were asked to hand washes. I thought they are going to give them their own underwear. Yeah, I know. <laughs> they explained over the years the conditions, overworking and lack of paid overtime, lack of breaks, would worsen despite promises to workers to do otherwise. These promises, kind words from some of the very wealthy members, friendships with co-workers, kept them coming back year after year to the job, the worker added. It's still going on. The payroll stuff, the unpaid overtime, the rates if the day is set, but even if you work 23.5 hours a day, your daily rate is your daily rate. This was all kind of conceived to save money, which is kind of comical, the worker said, referring to the immense wealth of the members. They added, quote, the club really struggled hiring staff the last few years because they're just not getting with the program of modern food service labor where you have to pay a better wage. They argued isolation of the camp and demanding environment amplified some of the typical poor working conditions in the restaurant and hospitality industry because there's no internet, no cell service, and the pressure from the club to meet the demands of members and keep enticing new, very wealthy members into the club. Quote, 
All of these kind words and supposed good gestures only were only available to me if I kept my mouth shut and if I were worked around the clock and didn't complain. So I feel used, the worker added. I gave them a lot of good years. The lawsuit is seeking class action status affecting 300 employees who worked outside the camp that used the staffing firm for hiring and they are seeking up to $1.5 million in damages from the all-male club in Bohemia Grove. I think that's far enough there. Chelsea, what are your thoughts? interesting i mean they probably don't want this guy doing this <laughs> and i think at the end out. of the day if you're going to be in charge of a super secretive club that has weird conspiracies about it just pay your damn workers pay them at yeah. least minimum wage yeah that's weird and he's not working 23.5 hour days is he he might have i think what they meant there is no matter how many hours you work you just get paid the day rate weird all I can say about that. Yeah. And if any of you are involved with a super secret club, just talk to your payroll people or your management to make sure yeah. that your employees are being paid properly. You probably just want to pay them a decent wage, especially if you're making lots of money in memberships, that, that kind of clientele. Yeah. But hey, nobody wants to work anymore. With that, let's get into this episode. Okay. From the unexplained to the mundane, come join us on a journey to the fringe. Hello and welcome to Journey to the Fringe. Don't mind that snaky smell. It's just sometimes what the fringe smells like. It might have something to do with that ancient room filled with snakes, but let's not worry too much about that. We are your clean and aroma-free podcast hosts, Taylor and Chelsea. And today, speaking of aromas, we are talking about those things that you might smell on your walks down to the beach, on the hikes, through the trees. And of course, we are talking about plants. Chelsea, I believe, is going to be telling us about those cryptid of our planty friends who remain elusive and hard to see. Yeah, very fringy indeed. And I'm sure that you're thinking, how fringy can plants be? Well, I'm gonna, we're proving you wrong today because we're delving into the fringy and mundane subject that we are here at Journey to the Fringe. We only ever recently thought this was possible as a topic, which is cryptobotany. We have just recently come into some information, new fringiness. If cryptobotany sounds familiar to you, but you just can't put your finger on it, well, that is because it sounds like cryptozoology, aka cryptid. We shorten it down for you because cryptozoology is a mouthful. And we've covered that time and time again on this podcast, and we love them ever so dearly. However, instead of ending in zoology, it ends in botany, which is plants study of plants to be specific. All in all, it's the study of plants whose existence has not been confirmed and is the search for formally undescribed plants. There are so many ways we could go with this, but today I'm doing man-eating variety. I guess this one kind of comes back to the Venus flytrap. I've had one. They do eat things that are not water. What do plants eat? Sunlight. Sun, sun rays. Sun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Venus flytrap eats more than just the sun. And then they eat CO2 and fart out oxygen for us. Yeah, plants are amazing. The Venus flytrap, of course, which probably doesn't eat humans. I've never seen it eat a human, just a fly. They don't get that big. Yeah. Yeah. Insects that we know of, and that's probably it. That's probably proven they don't eat humans. So <laughs> Venus flytrap. I, I don't know if you can like prove they don't eat humans, but I think it's just an agreed upon fact. 
I mean, I guess you could never really rule it out for sure because there's always a one-off, right? I do have an interesting fact about the Venus flytrap I would like to share at this point. Chelsea, where do you think the Venus flytrap is located? Like its natural habitat? Australia. See, yeah, you would think it would be exotic. It, Yeah, killer plants. It makes sense in Australia. Amazon makes sense. Rainforest. It's from the Carolinas. What? Really? Yep. Why? That doesn't even make sense. Maybe it does. <laughs> Maybe it does heat humans. And the universe was trying to produce some sort of plant that would eliminate Carolinas. And that's its only native area, is North and South Carolina. That is so weird. Okay, so the Venus flytrap apparently discovered in the Carolinas in the 1760s. So you're probably thinking, like, of course the Venus flytrap exists. Let me just get through what I wrote here, because I don't know where this is going. Up until this point, no one would have believed that it could actually catch and consume insects. But of course, that is its career path. It just eats insects. As well as the sun? I don't know. I didn't do that much research. Well, it's green. I, I assume it does some photosynthesis. It's yeah, just, well, it would have not to. Not a lot. Not a lot. I mean, have you ever seen it close around a fly? It is really slow. It doesn't just like eat it. So being that the species of plant does in fact exist, reports have also emerged from several reported remote regions of the world concerning carnivorous plants that can ensnare and devour creatures as large as birds, dogs, and monkeys, and sometimes even humans. That's got to get their protein. Some of them. I guess. I don't know that the sun gives you that much protein. So first up is the Madagascar tree. This tree is in fact the earliest well-known tale of a man-eating tree. So does that make it still not very well-known because we've never heard of this before? I mean, as well-known as you're going to get for the man-eating tree variety, cryptid tree, cryptobotany tree. I think it's been like a cartoon trope that there's man-eating plants. But outside of that, like, I honestly didn't know. I never knew. Stories of man-eating plants. This is brand new news to us. So we first hear of this in an article for New York World by Edmund Spencer on April 26, 1874, in which in the daily edition, then two days later in the weekly edition. In the article, a letter was published by a purported German explorer named Karl Leche, Leech, depending on where he's from, who provided a report of encountering a sacrifice performed by the Makoto tribe of Madagascar. And sorry, what year was this? This is 1874. Okay. So, fucking long time ago. Spiritualism is still at its height. No, it's coming to a close. Okay, so it's performed by a tribe in Madagascar. The paper claimed to have received its information about the tree from, quote, the last number of Grafe and Walters magazine published at Carl's Rue, end quote, in which there was a letter from the discovered Carl, who I just mentioned, who was an eminent botanist, and he wrote the letter to a colleague, Dr. Omelius, <laughs> Omelius, there's a name you don't hear, Friedlowski, which the article was mostly made up of a letter written. This story was picked up by many other newspapers of the day, including the South Australian Register on October 27, 1874, where it gained even greater popularity. Describing the tree, the letter related, quote, slender, delicate palpi with the fury of starved serpents quivered a moment over her head. 
Then as if instinct with demonic intelligence fastened upon her in sudden coils round and round her neck and arms. Then while her awful screams and yet more awful laughter rose wildly to be instantly strangled down again into a gurgling moan. The tendrils one after another like great green serpents with brutal energy and infernal rapidly rose retracted themselves and wrapped her about in fold after fold ever tightening with cruel swiftness and savage tenacity of anacondas fastening upon their prey, end quote. So this plant is moving as a snake around this woman strangling her. Yes, and she seems to be having a mental breakdown. Yeah, because she both is screaming, both screaming and, laugh. and laughing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how else to react by being eaten like that by a plant, so... <laughs> in the letter, Leche describes traveling through Madagascar into the region occupied by the Makotos, a tribe of inhospitable savages of whom little was known. As Leche and his party walked along, they noticed that members of the Makotos tribe were silently emerging from the jungle and following behind them. They came to a spot where a stream wound through the forest, and here they encountered the most singular of trees. Leche provided a detailed description of the tree. If you can imagine a pineapple eight feet high and thick in proportion rusting upon its base and denuded of leaves, you'll have a good idea of the trunk of the tree, which, however, was not the color of a banana, but a dark dingy brown and apparently hard as iron. From the apex of its truncated cone, at least two feet in diameter, eight leaves hung sheer to the ground, like doors swung back on their hinges. These leaves, which were joined to the top of the tree at regular intervals, were about 11 or 12 feet long and shaped very much alike the leaves of the American ahave or century plant. They were two feet through in their thickest part and three feet wide, tapering to a sharp point that looked like a cow's horn, very convex on the outer, but now under surface, and on the inner, now upper surface, slightly concave. This concave face was thickly set with very strong thorny hooks, like those upon the head of a chisel. These leaves, hanging thus limp and lifeless dead green in color, had in appearance the massive strength of oak fiber. Oh, it goes on. And on and on. The apex of the cone was a round white concave figure, like a smaller plate set within a larger one. This was not a flower, but a receptacle. And there exuded in a clear, treacly liquid, honey sweet, and possessed of violent, intoxicating, and so perific properties. From underneath the rim, so to speak, the undermost plate, a series of long, hairy, green tendrils stretched out in every direction towards the horizon. These were seven or eight feet long each and tapered from four inches to half an inch in diameter. Yet they stretched out stiffly as iron rods. Above these, from between the upper and under cup, Six white, almost transparent palpi reared themselves towards the sky, whirling and twisting with a marvelous, incessant motion, yet constantly reaching upwards. Thin as reeds and frail as quills, apparently, they were yet five or six feet tall and were so constantly and vigorously in motion, with such a subtle, sinuous, silent throbbing against the air that they made me shudder in spite of myself, with their suggestion of serpent flayed yet dancing on their tails. 
The Makotos, when they saw the tree, began shouting, Tepi, Tepi! And they surrounded one of their women and forced her at javelin point to climb the tree until she reached the apex of the cone that contained the treacly fluid. Tisk, tisk, the Makotos men cried, which meant drink, drink. Obediently, she drank, and then almost instantly, the slender palpi of the tree came alive, quivered, and seized her around the neck and arms. She screamed, but the tendrils gripped her tighter, strangling her until her cries became a gurgled moan. The contraction of the tendrils caused the fluid of the tree to stream down its trunk, mingling with blood and oozing viscera of the victim. The Makotos rushed towards to drink this mixture of blood and tree fluid. <laughs> I can't believe I just said that. Then ensued a grotesque and indescribably hideous orgy. Lachey concluded his letter by explaining that he studied the coniferous tree for three more weeks. Weeks, during which he found several other smaller specimens in the forest. He saw one of the trees eat a lemur. He named the species Crinoida dagiana because when its leaves are in action, it bears a striking resemblance to the well-known fossil of the crinoid lily stone. So there's that. That is a lot of fine detail. That is. I have so many questions. The first one I really want to know is, so this is just like a stationary plant, right? It doesn't move? It doesn't seem to move. I particularly like the detail that it wasn't yellow like a banana. But no, it seems to have tentacles, so to say. Yeah, that are just like flailing around in the air. Yeah, but also pointing to the sky like iron. <laughs> yeah, so these don't move around, but the tribe was surprised to see it. Like, would they not know where it was? I would really want to, like, mark on a map. No, this is where and these man-eating trees are. Just avoid this area. Seems as if they are consistently sacrificing people to it. I don't, it, yeah. it kind of seems like they came across this in that story by surprise, and they're like, oh, let's sacrifice this woman because we found it. No, I think the, the or writer Or were they going it, there to sacrifice? Yeah, I think the writer of it came upon it by surprise and witnessed this all just by a stroke of luck. Okay. At this was going on at the very moment but at the same time he's like not that taken aback because he's making very very detailed observations about this tree not the orgy he just said it not out. the orgy well a little bit of the orgy because definitely not as detailed as the tree itself that is not yellow like a banana nor was the orgy so well the orgy might have been we don't know for sure <laughs> So then a book is written about the Madagascan man-eater plant, written by Chase Osborne, who was oddly a governor of Michigan. I could not find any evidence that he had actually been to Madagascar. I believe he wrote it based on this story article yeah yeah story stating article so anyhow oh yeah like if you book. knew about a man-eating tree i don't know why you'd want to go to madagascar that's true you might just you know happen upon another one of these and flailing about it i way. would want i don't know that i would seek it out some people would he writes this book entitled madagascar land of the man-eating tree so he claims that both the tribes and missionaries in madagascar knew about the tree provided the same account that i just gave you and also adds that I do not know whether this Tegish tree really exists or whether the blood-curdling stories about it are pure myth. It is enough for my purpose <laughs> if its story focuses on your interest upon one of the least known spots in the world. So he can say that based on never being to Madagascar, that it may or may not exist. Yeah. Any idea when he wrote that story? No. 
That seems like an important thing that I left out. And then turns out Willie Lay, a science author, looked into this and it was completely made up. What? But it um, sounds so believable. I know, right? I know. It was that banana detail that yeah. really got me. <laughs> you would have never thought. Usually when there's so much detail like this, it's completely made up. I know you guys were all banking on it being true, but... Here we are. Sorry to disappoint. Next up, Yateveo, which is native to South America and Central America and is a close relative to the Madagascar tree. So somebody probably would have taken somehow the seeds of the Madagascar tree to South America. That doesn't exist. Yes. And got the Yateveo. <laughs> This is named after the Spanish phrase, I see you already, named as such because of the hissing sound it makes, which sounds similar to the phrase. <laughs> so the hissing sound sounds like it's saying, yeah, to veo. This plant is said to catch and consume large insects, but will also settle for and attempt to consume humans. Seems like a big stretch to go from, I mean, how large is a large insect? Maybe the size of my hand. Uh, they can get pretty big. I think they can get bigger than that. What? Oh, yeah. The centipedes in the rainforest. They're huge. Oh, shit. Okay. Let's not talk about it that much. Because that is more terrifying than a man-eating plant. Because I feel like you could easily get away from a man-eating plant. Yeah. It inhabits the secluded and rarely visited Tepui, a high and misty mesa in the Guyana highlands of South America. Descriptions of the plant describe it as having a short, thick trunk and long tendril-like appendages which are used to catch prey. It has poisonous spines that resemble many huge serpents in an angry discussion, <laughs> occasionally darting from side to side, as if striking at an imaginary foe, and the foe being any creature that dares come within reach i mean how dare it some accounts include an eye which is super creepy so i can't picture how this looks the thorns look like snakes that are fighting yeah okay can't picture that no <laughs> it's it's tendrils so it would also have tentacles okay okay yeah it's a fairly good theme of man-eating plants they have tentacles natives of whichever country you choose to think this is in is it Guyana? It's somewhere in, in there. In the Guyana area? Yeah. I thought it to be a work of an evil witch doctor. This man-eater makes its appearance in James W. Buell C. and Land, 1889, where he describes the plant. I love the things that come out of the 1800s. They're just so whimsical. <laughs> J.W. Buell gives us this description of this abomination in his seminal work, Sea and Land, 1887. Quote, Travelers have told us of a plant which they assert grows in Central Africa and also in South America that is not contented with myriad of larger insects which it catches and consumes, but its veracity extends to making even humans its prey. This marvelous... <laughs> Wait for it. This marvelous vegetable minotaur is representative of having a short... I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> this episode has some very unique phrases <laughs> that I never thought were things that had been said. I never and thought I would are. say this ever. Yeah, this is in print. <laughs> and so let me start again because we need to hear it again. This marvelous vegetable minotaur is represented as having a short, thick trunk from the top 
of which radiate giant spines, narrow and flexible, but of ex- extraordinary tenaciousness, edges of which are armed with barbs or dagger-like teeth. Instead of growing upright or at an inclined angle from the trunk, these spines lay their outer ends upon the ground. And so gracefully are they distributed that the trunk resembles an easy couch with green drapery around it. The unfortunate traveler, ignorant of the monstrous creation which lies in his way and curious to examine the strange plant or to rest himself upon it, inviting stock approaches without a suspicion of his certain doom. The moment his feet are set within the circle of the horrid spines, they rise up like giant serpents and in entwine themselves about him until he is drawn upon the stump and they speedily drive their daggers into his body and thus complete the massacre. The body is crushed until every drop of blood is squeezed out of it and becomes absorbed by the gore-loving plant when the dry carcass is thrown out and the horrid trap set again. End. Huh. It looks like a couch that you can just take a break on while hiking and then... You can easily be fooled by it. Yes. Huh. And the tentacles reach out from there. And then it just like grabs you and stabs you to death. Like so every liquid in your body. Yeah. I'm not sure how it feeds on you though. And they didn't say anything about the hissing. No. You would think you would also hear that upon approaching it when it's it hisses that and couch. says yet yeah. to veo. <laughs> the couch is hissing yet to veo at you. It's like a good spot, if any, to take a break. I'm surprised this hasn't been made into a motion picture. I mean, all they're doing right now is remaking old movies. I see a gold mine in this. Why don't they use old ideas? Yeah. yeah. This is a gold mine. And if they take it from this podcast, I would assume they would owe us royalties or something. Yeah, well, that's always you know, been our advertising. Someone else's work. Yeah. Exactly. We give the advertising and then they pay us once they feel exactly. that it's been paying out. We take other people's ideas, say them on this podcast, and then they pay us. At some point in the future. Yeah. We don't do any of the payments beforehand. Exactly. And that's what makes our advertising campaigns unique. Very incredibly unique. Next up, the vampire vine, aka the devil's snare. I'm going to start with the account first of the vampire vine for this one that detailed a plant that had the capability to drain the blood of any living thing which comes within its death dealing touch, which they're all pretty much doing at this point. So that's not yeah. unique. I'm still not sure like how it's feeding, but they are sucking the fluids dry, except for that first plant, which just created orgy juice. Yeah. <laughs> like it <laughs> didn't actually say it feeds on. Them. It just kills them and creates orgy juice. Yep, it's almost as if it hasn't properly been thought through. <laughs> almost. But that one is very much a thing. I mean, this these could just be killing for fun. It's true, which is very concerning in a plant. Or human. Basically anyone killing for fun is hunter. Back to, who is this? The vampire vine. Mr. Dunstan, a naturalist who had recently returned whenever this is taking place. Probably not 2023. I'm guessing it's the 1800s. Recently within whenever this event is taking place, returned from Central America. Seems like a weird thing to get hung up on on my part, but let me continue. So he's recently returning from Central America, again, time frame established, where he spent nearly two years in the study of the flora and the fauna of the country and relates the finding of a singular growth in one of the swamps which surround the Great Lakes of Nicaragua. He engaged in hunting for botanical and entomological specimens. When he hears a dog cry out, no, he's done. 
He's done barking. No. As if in agony from a distance. I was hoping he would have good timing on that. That would be great, yeah. <laughs> but no, he knows to fear the vampire oh, vine. He knows when to fuck it up. Running to the spot whence the animal's cries came. I'm glad he went to the dog's rescue. Mr. Dunstan found him enveloped in a perfect network of what seemed to be a fine rope-like tissue of roots and fibers. The native servants who accompanied Mr. Dunstan manifested the greatest horror of the vine, which they called the Devil's Snare, and were full of stories of its death-dealing powers. I do not have those stories. I just have Mr. Dunstan's accounts. He was able to discover very little about the nature of the plant, owing to the difficulty of handling it, for its grasp can only be torn away with the loss of skin and even of flesh. That's the same thing. That's the same thing. Yeah. That's the very same thing. That's a wordy way to say the same thing twice. As near as Mr. Dunstan could ascertain its power of suction, it contained in a number of the words in this are incredible infinitesimal mouse or little suckers, which ordinarily closed open for the reception of food. That's actually what it says. Yeah. So it's rope appendages are made up of little Venus flytraps, then, I guess. Okay. Okay. That's weird. I think. I think that's a good way to put it. I think so. This is using a lot of words. If the substance is animal, the blood is drawn off and the carcass or refuse then dropped. They just want the blood. And the skin. Uh, Oh, oh, this was published 1891. So they're all around the same time, which is weird. October, to be more specific, in Review of Reviews by editor William Thomas Stead, the account review was based on a story found in Lucifer magazine, which would be Mr. Dunstan. So that's the vampire vine. And most of the accounts you're going to find are short. There's not a whole lot of information on them, mostly because they're not real things. Well, and I just spoiled the episode. Not really. Most of the only the first guys even was like, yeah, I tried to study it and I found another one. It was eating a lemur. Yeah. <laughs> that would be disturbing to see. Everybody else is just at the one. I feel like I would need therapy after seeing a plant eat a lemur. But that's being living in an environment where plants don't ordinarily eat lemur. I feel like it'd be more concerning seeing a tribe come across the plant, have one of their tribe members <laughs> go up, drink the sap, get strangled to death, have their fluids come out, and then have orgy in said fluids. <laughs> Again, yeah. that, like that is like quite yeah. the... He remained composed throughout. Yes, he did. <laughs> I mean, we imagine. I mean, the way I read it may not have been relaying the proper panic he was feeling. <laughs> Last but not least, we have the man-eating tree of Nubia, a coniferous tree reported by one eyewitness who relayed the story in 1881. Yes, another novel, this one written by Phil Robinson. It's called Under the Punka, laying the tales of his uncle's travels around the world. And one part in particular involved a man-eating tree that was found in Nubia. Of course, his uncle describes the tree. Let me get to where he describes it. Quote, this awful plant that rears its splendid death shade in the central solitude of a Nubian fern forest sickens by its unwholesome humors all vegetation from its immediate vicinity and feeds upon the wild beasts that in the terror of the chase or the heat of noon seek the thick shelter of its bows. Upon the birds that flitting across the open space come within the charmed circle of its power 
or innocently refreshed themselves from the cups of its great waxen flowers upon even man himself when, an infrequent prey, the savage seeks its asylum in the storm or turns from the harsh foot-wounding sword grass of the glade to pluck the wondrous fruit that hang plumb down among the wondrous foliage. And such fruit, glorious golden ovals, great honey drops swelling by their own weight in pear-shaped translucencies, foliage it glistens with a strange dew that all day long drips on the ground below, nurturing a rank growth of grasses, which shoot up in places so high that their spikes of fierce blood-fed green show far up among the deep-tinted foliage of the terrible tree, and like a jealous bodyguard, keep concealed the fearful secret of the charnel house within. <laughs> Draw round the black roots of the murderous plant in a scent screen of living green. The story of the uncle so-and-so continues on describing how the tree captured and ate one of the uncle's guides and so he had to start blasting. I don't know if they wanted money mm -hmm. or they wanted something more sexual. Wow. But it's a lucky thing I had my pieces. Wow. Anyway, I started blasting. Bah! Wow. Well, I don't see so good, so I missed. When the uncle finally ran out of ammunition, he pulled out his knife to slit the tree's throat. Obviously, the tree fought back with its blood-sucking leaves and entangling limbs. So that's that. He slit the tree's throat. Anyway, you guys all think I'm a hero, and I'll accept that responsibility. All of these stories are insane. Like, they're so wordy using all these weird words. <laughs> Final thoughts. To the outside observer, it seems as though maddening plants are 100% fabricated. But my question to you is why would they lie? <laughs> yeah, that's crypto botany. That's man-eating crypto botany. And I feel like in the future, we will be having other forms of crypto botany that we will cover. Because there's more than just man-eating. There are other ones. And I will leave that for your imagination until the episode when we can cover it next. Well, Chelsea, I thank you for looking into these big-worded, clearly not fabricated stories. If you use your biggest words, that means it's truthful. The more That's wordy with detail, I find the more credible your story will be so just remember that for your future credible encounters yeah also use specific numbers that aren't even so like eight yeah. feet tall six and a half feet tall six feet three yeah. inches it's more believable for yeah. sure yeah never round never yeah. round about 50 yeah. feet tall no no it is no. 49 and three eighths of an inch skeptics will put fucking holes in that if you're rounding yeah. up to the nearest hole and with that piece of advice i have been taylor here with Chelsea, we are Journey to the Fringe. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hey. Thank you for listening to Journey to the Fringe. If you have liked what you have listened to, please like, share, subscribe, or follow, depending on what venue you are listening to us through. Also, please, if possible, leave a five-star review, as that really helps us in the algorithms. Should you wish to interact with us, please check us out on your social media of choice. I bet you we are there. And if you really want to communicate with us and give us ideas for new episodes, or tell us that we're wrong and terrible, either way, please send us an email at journeytothefringe at gmail.com. For now, I'll see you in the next episode. Uh.